selfishly, it gives us our best stories, but yeah. Um, you would think, yes, it's 2023. Can we not just keep our hands to ourselves and our pants on at work, please? I don't care who you are. Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, and this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. As we wrap up September and, can you believe it, the end of the third quarter, it's time for our monthly look at hot topics in the world of people management. And joining me this month is Kara Kelly. Kara is a previous guest on this podcast and runs Clinical HR LLC, an HR advisory firm for dental and medical practices. Welcome back to Good Morning HR, Kara. Thanks, Mike. I'm glad to be back. Well, it's uh, it's been quite a year and one of the hot topics all year, uh, starting with really Colorado last year, has been pay transparency. And this month, uh, a couple of weeks ago, New York State's pay transparency law kicked in, which is requiring employers with more than five employees, I think, uh, or five or more employees to list uh, pay ranges on all the job postings. And we've seen it come across you know, multiple states across the country. Uh, and so to the point where it's going to become the default. In fact, uh, there was an article this, this month that Indeed did a, did a look at all of their job postings and uh, the majority of them, I think over half of their postings, maybe it's closer to 60%, uh, had some sort of pay information, if not minimum and maximums, at least some pay range kind of information uh, about the job posting and what the, what the position would pay. Are you seeing that on the clinical side very much or what, how, are, how are medical practices uh, approaching that? Well, I mean, the ones with a specific state law are obviously going to have to do that. I've actually recently had a client that isn't under one of those laws, but indeed has apparently decided that they're going to post a pay range for her, whether it's her range or not. And so she put information into Indeed and they posted something different. And I don't know if that was a user error or what was going on, but it's causing her problems hiring because the listed ranges are obviously different than what she was wanting to um, to put out for that particular position. And so, uh, yes, I, I have seen some hiccups like that going on. And like I said, I don't know if it's user error or something new Indeed's trying but um, there there have been some complications, I feel like, with that. Yeah, and that's kind of one of the issues with it. Like Colorado is requiring, even if the job's not in Colorado, but you're going to accept applicants from Colorado, so you're posting it on Indeed or something, technically they're claiming that they've got jurisdiction to tell you that you've got to um, post a range. And so, but the, the difference is, the problem is, is, the cost of living is different in places. And so what in your world, a dental hygienist makes in beautiful Fort Worth, Texas, where you would almost work for free just so you could live here versus New York or San Francisco or someplace like that is, is probably significantly different. And so uh, when you're trying to recruit on a n- national basis, you can look really uncompetitive when you m- may be competitive. So, when your clients are asking you about pay transparency and should we do this or, you know, what are the pros and cons? What are you telling them? 
I mean, I've always been an advocate for pay transparency. You know what you're going to pay for the position. You know what your range is. I understand the old school thinking of, of not making that be the one thing, but employees are making your job candidates are making business decisions for themselves, just like you're making a decision for yourself as a business. So why not just share that? Let people self-select out um, and, and have a process have a clear, transparent process for why you're paying what you're paying for that role. And then we don't have these problems. And I think that's the big argument for it. And I don't see a reason to keep, you know, keep pay secret. And, and, you know, why would you, if you're, you know, like the term engineer, there are all levels of engineers and a lot of companies, and we work with a lot of uh, smaller engineering and accounting firms, and a lot of them don't have real detailed you know, pay bands as far as engineer level one, engineer level two, they're making decisions, you know, they've got, you know, maybe they've got 40 or 50 engineers or 40 or 50 accountants even, and they're making decisions based on that, you know, individual productivity and workload. So, you know, but if, if you're looking for somebody and you know, what we're looking for here is, is more of an entry level accountant or engineer, and we're willing to pay, you know, 60 to $75,000 a year for this role post that so that, 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 that engineer who's looking for a 150 K job isn't going to waste his time or her time and your time. And, uh, I'm a, I think that's the best argument for it. Of course, that's not the argument legislators are making. And it's not the reason legislators are making, uh, those arguments. They're concerned about pay inequities. And what Correct. we hear all the time is that women are paid significantly less than men for, you know, uh, and technically when you look across uh, all jobs and what women make for all the jobs women have in the country and what men make for all the jobs men have, it's uh, roughly, you know, 83 cents on the dollar, but it gets down to a 1% difference when you're looking at the same job and the same experience level. And so you're talking now that's still 1% is still significant over a career, you know, a hundred thousand dollar position. That's a thousand dollars a year and adds up quite quickly over a career of, of compound interest and savings and things like that. So it's not to say you should minimize it, but that 1% is going to get lost inside of a pay range anyway. So it's not going to show up. And so uh, I don't, I don't see how this solves that particular problem, but I just think it makes HR more efficient and makes it easier on the recruiters. It does. And, and I mean, it's, it's still a valid argument to, you know, to want to have pay equality and, and want to make sure that we're sure. not discriminating based on it. And, and I understand the employer's argument against it as well, that they don't want to post the position because, oh my goodness, what if one of their team members who's making less than what they're having to hire for sees it? Oh, they might have to increase wages across the board. Oh my. Um, well, that's the reality of it. You think they're not looking at the other job posts that your competitors are posting or that other people in other fields, other professions are posting uh, and seeing what the wages are there? They're going to see it anyways. <laughs> so just post it. You know, the problem is, is we have, you know, inflation and we've, we're coming out of a, a time of pretty significant wage inflation. And so in order to get those two or three positions that you had to fill in this sector, uh, you may have paid them more to get them in the door with the intent of holding on at that salary for a longer period of time. So until the rest of you know, the team catches up, but when everybody knows about it, suddenly you've got to make a decision as an employer, right? Uh, are we going to raise everybody else? Are we really going to lock ourselves into this pay range when we know the market's going to loosen up and we'll be able to hire people uh, for a more efficient uh, 
pay rate at some point and probably the, you know, the near future 18 months or so. And that's just a kind of decision employers have to make. And I'm not sure that any circumstance there's a right or wrong answer how you do that. Um, I think when we had the, the great resignation and, uh, you know, all of those concerns and, and labor got more and more expensive, a lot of employers rushed to become a lot more competitive on pay. And I think they're, they're going to pay the, pay the, you know, the consequences for that. I think that, you know, some employers were, um, certainly employers I've talked to, uh, recently as all of their other expenses have gone up and they're trying to figure out how they become more competitive and stay efficient. Now they're looking, they're saying, we've, we hired these people at this level, but we see this whole pool of talent out here that's willing now to work for, you know, you know, a lesser percentage. And that's just how the market is. So getting, you know, but once you've got somebody in a salary, you've kind of tied your hands as you, as to what your flexibility is in that area. Yeah, I can imagine their morale and productivity is not going to increase if you come back to them and say, well, the market's changed. And so we're going to decrease your pay this month. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good luck uh, trying to do that. Um, but uh, the, you know, we're seeing like even Walmart is, uh, there was a Sherm article that Walmart's dropping their pay on average about a dollar an hour for new employees. And so somebody's been in this job for three months and now I've, I'm coming in and I'm going to make a dollar less. And, you know, we would all love in a perfect world that our employees not talk about salary with each other. But of course, they've got the right to under the National Labor Relations Act and they're going to anyway. And so, you know, it just how do you how do you manage that? And how do you deal with that as an employer? You just got to make decisions. And sometimes you just have to say, that's the situation we found ourselves in. And this is the market now. And, um, you know, you want to work here? We'd love to have you at this rate. Well, and taking a look at the rest of their compensation package as well, taking a look at the benefits that they're offering. Um, you know, it's not just about that hourly rate or that salary. And we can talk about culture. And people say people don't, you know, leave jobs just for money, but they do sometimes. And, and sometimes that is the reason. And, and, you know, people, you know, people don't leave jobs. They leave bosses. Well, they leave maybe bosses who don't pay them the way they want to be paid too, or, or they leave bosses who, you know, or they go to bosses who are willing to pay them more. And that's fair, right? That's, you know, that's, um, that's just the reality. Uh, but we're always, I think, going to have this, this, this pay inequity between people who entered an organization at different times and, I don't know if there's an easy way to correct that. Um, you know, at, you know, we're small enough of an organization that what 22 team, team members so that I can, we, you know, ours is really transparent. Everybody pretty much knows what competency somebody's checked out on. And so we pay according to the competencies that they've, they've been assessed for. And so you can pretty much figure out what anybody's making. Uh, and we, everybody's on that same scale too. So when we raise it, we raise it across the board, but, uh, a large organization that's really trying to, especially something like Walmart with t- tiny margins, you know, uh, you know, that is just a very narrow, high volume, narrow margin business. And so they don't really have a lot of choices there. No, they don't. Uh, and, you know, you can look at other industries as well. Restaurant industry is ones that have narrower margins. Um, honestly, even even sometimes in healthcare, we see that if it's a practice that takes insurance is a PPO practice. Um, they're limited to what they can do. They can't typically just go out and decide that they want to increase all of their fees. They're under a contract with the insurance company. So they have they have some limitations there as well. Now, granted, their profit margins are significantly higher than Walmart's, but 
typically. Um, but even so, they still have those same same struggles. Yeah, and in in in, in that environment, you know, if they're if you know if they're taking Medicare, Medicaid patients, and those kinds of things, that's really going to tighten their margins as well and give them the ability. And that's why I think in a lot of medical practices, you almost never see your doctor anymore. You see PAs, which I've been thrilled with. I mean, I've had no problems with, but, uh, you know, everybody's looking for a way to, de- to deliver things as, as inexpensively as possible. Well, sometimes they go the opposite direction where they become a fee-for-service practice where they're cash-based, they don't take insurances, or they're out of network and don't take insurances. And uh, then they have a lot more control over the situation. So while we're still on compensation, what other areas around pay are you hearing employers are, are your are your clients telling you that it's getting easier to hire people, especially because your healthcare, so many people exited healthcare after uh, the the pandemic. Yeah, ended, it's it's know. not getting easier right now. Um, so, like you said, so many have exited for many reasons, um, and and I don't think the pandemic created these problems. I think the pandemic compounded the problem. Um, but they had some of these issues beforehand. They had team members that were marked as part-time so they wouldn't get benefits um, or they wouldn't get benefits for a very long time, like an unreasonably long time. Uh, no paid holidays for a year kind of kind of thing. So I think that more opportunities, the fact that we have remote work is definitely more prevalent now. Um, just a lot of a lot of more flexibility in the job market. A lot of people starting side gigs and side hustles that are turning into full-time income for them. Um, there's a lot of people that left for a lot of reasons and not as many coming back into the market. So I, I don't foresee it getting easier anytime soon. Like like you're projecting maybe another 12 to 18 months out, um, but probably not by the end of this year. <laughs> no. And, and, and I think, you know, we lost a lot of those kind of frontline workers to, uh, to gig jobs and, you know, right now they, they enjoy that flexibility, uh, but it comes with a certain amount of unpredictability. And when the economy turns, as I believe we may be doing right now, that there may be less demand for some of that stuff. And they may, you know, people, you know, maybe looking at coming back to some of the, you know, more traditional full-time regular employment. Hopefully. Yeah. For your, <laughs> yeah. For, definitely for your clients, huh? There's also, uh, and we'll put a, a link in the show notes. There's uh, hrdive.com is is running is keeping a running list of all the pay transparency laws around the country uh, that I thought was interesting. So if uh, you've got operations in in other in multiple jurisdictions, you may want to take a look at that. And again, we'll we'll include that all in the, the show notes. Another article I thought was interesting was uh, a Wall Street Journal. I couldn't tell if it was an opinion piece or a news article, but uh, the the title was "Try Hard, but Not That Hard." Eighty five percent is the magic number for productivity. And Schoolhouse Rock did not teach me that eighty five was the magic number. I thought uh, seven was, but uh, the whole point being that maybe don't try for a hundred percent, you know, performance or productivity. Eighty five percent is good enough. What was your take on that? I think different generations are going to have different opinions on that one, Uh, most certainly. I mean, I'm one of the people who like to give 100% to everything that I do. And so I don't, I don't specifically see that, you know, newer people coming into the workforce won't be trying quite as hard. I know that there are people out there um, that don't give 110%. But I think that 
you know, isn't, isn't limited to one generation over another. I think sometimes people just suck and some people aren't going to give 110%. As far as giving 85% being the magic number, I don't, I'm, I'm interested to see where they actually settled on that, where 85% came from. Um, I, I don't know that that's, enough really to be productive. I don't know if that's a standard we should be looking at that 85% productivity is is somehow (laughs) going to be the sweet spot for everyone. I know that it's not truly possible to be on 100% of the time. And I know some of this is coming from like remote work and the numbers, the stats that they're looking at as far as when people are active uh, and so on. And so yeah, 100% of the time is probably not really going to be functional. But yeah, 85% seems a a little low for, for some industries personally. Well, and, you know, in that article kind of shifted from, you know, aiming for perfection, considering, you know, being perfect all the time is 100%, uh, which I would really disagree with. I think if you're going to, you know, if you're shooting for 100%, you there's going to be a certain amount of failure if you're doing it well, because you're innovating and testing and looking for new ideas and, and you're going to have failures along the way that you learn from. Uh, if you don't have any failures, then you're doing something wrong. I mean, you're not pushing the boundaries. But uh, then it goes on, though, to talk about not meeting your goals. And I think that's the bigger problem. Um, I don't think you set goals uh, and really commit to them that you don't intend to really fully invest to meet. Um, and I, I think goal set, I think if, you, if you're selling for, you know, hitting 85% of your goals, what you did was set the wrong goals to start with. And so either they didn't really align with your values, either as an organization or you personally or there was a, you know, you, you made a mistake when setting the goal. I can agree with that. Um, the difference between hitting 85% of your goals and giving 85% effort, I think you can still hit 100% of your goals if you give 85% effort, depending on what the goal is, right? I, I think it also depends on, on what your position is and what your field is. Not every position is going to be innovating. Some people are just truly doing the job. They're doing the tasks. They're doing things like data entry. You're not necessarily going to need to innovate for something like data entry. You, you do the job. And so you know, I, I give it my best effort personally, but <laughs> that's just me. Well, I think from an employer point of view, we've, you know, we've got to realize that, well, first of all, that everyone, including me, we're all always underperforming. If, you know, if I'm, you know, I, there's always something else I can do to optimize it, my performance. Yeah, incrementally, yeah, and uh, you know, and you know, not watching nine hours of, of Netflix every morning would be a good start. Now I'm working on that, but the you know, but there is you know, we all are underperforming at some level. But I think that expectation that, that of management that someone is always going to be on, and and that life outside of work, it's not going to get involved here, and it's not going to we're not going to have days where you know, even our best employee feel, it seems like they're just slugging through, you know, slogging through the mud to get stuff done. That's going to happen. And I think that's something that managers need to really realize when they're setting goals and trying to figure out what productivity is about uh, in their, on their team. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And as as you bring up people not bringing really their whole self to work, um, there was a stat from Chris Moreland who wrote the book uh, Blind Attraction to Certainty. And he says that on average, people only bring about 65% of themselves to work because they don't feel safe in being vulnerable and bringing their whole human to work. 
And so that may play a factor in their productivity as well. Sure. Yeah. And it makes perfect sense, right? If, if, you know, how, you know, it used to be when I got into HR, when you were in elementary school, um, that was, you know, there was this, there was this hard line. You leave work at work and home at home and those things never cross, you know, the oil and water. It wasn't, it wasn't the truth. It didn't really happen that way, but that's what you were constantly told. And I, I think if anything, this generation of, of employee is just being more honest about, about it. And, uh, and you know, the, whether it's hypocrisy or just cognitive dissonance of, of saying one thing and actually doing another, they're not buying it. And we've, you know, we have certainly over my career become a much more inclusive society and, and workplaces have become, and there are things that, you know, I see regularly that even when I started this company 25 years ago, uh, we wouldn't have seen. And, uh, in my opinions have changed and, you know, I've, you know, I've, I've become more relaxed about stuff. We had, I had, a a leader in my organization some time ago who, if a woman wore open toe shoes and especially sandals to work, she would have just freaked out. And I never understood that, but now you look around and, you know, if you, especially if your employees are remote, they're, they're probably barefoot half the time. So, you know, it's uh, and, and, and what, what was the difference? I mean, I don't want people walking around. I also had an employee once who had those, those rubber shoes with the little toes in them and he wore those. And I thought that was always an interesting and odd choice, but he was, he was a highly productive employee. So I, you know, I didn't care as long as the work was, was getting done. That's the mentality that matters though, is, is as long as the work is getting done, do we really need to have our nose to the grindstone hundred percent of the time? Are we paying right. on the results of the work? Or are we paying on butt in the chair time? Uh, if the goals you've set are actually getting achieved, do you really need to, to be at work all the time on all the time, a hundred percent of the time? Uh, and, and I, I still encounter some of that mentality that carries over from, you know, whenever you first started practicing in HR, um, it's, it's still there. I still speak with business leaders who are trying to find ways to incentivize their team to not use any PTO, uh, not use any sick leave. We, we give it to them, but we really don't want them to use it because, you know, yeah. we're not human and don't need to have time off work. Or we try to put it into certain boxes of they can use their PTO, but they can only do it during specific weeks of the year. I'm only going to give them two weeks that they can use it and the rest of it. Well, if they have to take it off, it's just going to be unpaid. And I'm like, ah, oh, people, please stop. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's just, that is going to ensure that your employees aren't giving you 100%. If they haven't had the, the R&R uh, and downtime and time with their family, and now after, you know, COVID and everything else where we worked remote, where a lot of people were able to work remote, they've, they've, a lot of those employees have grown accustomed to the, the flexibility that came with that. And I, a lot of employers are trying to take that away now and reel that in a little bit. And maybe they'll be successful. I mean, I think they'll be successful in environments where their labor is relatively low skill and there's and there's a, a, an ample source of it. Mm -hmm. But if you know, but if you're not just putting tab A and slot A all day long, you're looking for people who with initiative, who are problem solvers, whatever it is, then you've got to figure out what what you you know how you incentivize those people to come work for you and stay working for you, and that's often going to be a certain amount of flexibility now. 
No, absolutely. Um, and it's going to depend on the industry, I feel. You know, I, I keep seeing articles about returning to work, returning to work. And because I work in healthcare, they've returned to work since May of 2020 in a lot of states, yeah. at least in Texas anyway, uh, and shortly thereafter for other states. So um, for, for my clients and their team, they've been back at work. And, and I know that is the case for a lot of other um, essential workers as well. They were working through the pandemic. So return to work is is not something for them, they have to deal with more of the the burnout side of motivating productivity and whether or not people are on site, remote, flexible, this or that. Yeah. And managers need to realize that. And also it goes back to budgeting. Like when we're, we're doing our cost accounting, you know, so much of what we do either on the consulting side or on the, the background investigation side is people, you know, it's people effort. And so I know I pay, you know, you know, an analyst who's doing this work X dollars an hour. And so if it's going to be a one hour job, I have to include more than that one hour of effort, though, because when, when I'm when I'm budgeting, I'm budgeting and I don't want my employees to hear this, but I'm budgeting against 80 percent productivity. Okay. So uh, if if I need, you know, I'm assuming that that employee is not going to be fully productive for that entire hour. And we do that when we're setting goals and everything else, because I know, and, and, you know, I'm being generous there because my, you know, with my, you know, because my employees are actually much more productive than that. Uh, but when we're setting prices or anything like that, I, you know, I know people have to get up and go to the restroom, the, you know, and, 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 you know, in a remote environment, somebody rings the doorbell or this happens or people just need to get up and stretch. And I've got the kind of employees who we had to, bake in 15 minutes in the morning and 15 minutes in the afternoon where we forced them when we were in the office to get up and walk away from their computer. They could not be at their desk for that 15 minutes because otherwise they would sit there all day. And, uh, and it, it you know, that's the kind of, you know, the folks we had, uh, that's what their, you know, their normal behavior was. And, and so I get that, but I think leaders need to, realize that if this is a one hour job, that's really a hard, solid one hour, plan on it taking an hour and 10, hour and 15 minutes. Uh, and so you don't kill your people. And at the end of the day, I feel like they got stuff accomplished, but they're not just frazzled. Absolutely. Well, and I think some of it for motivating this productivity looks at the psychology behind what is actually motivating me telling you that I want this done on time is an external motivator. And that's not necessarily the most motivating uh, aspect of, of the psychology behind it. You know, you want to have some intrinsic motivators. You want them to be able to feel like they've accomplished something, that they have some autonomy, that they're doing a good job, that they're competent. Um, those are the kinds of things that are really going to motivate that productivity. If, if you let them have those wins throughout the day versus saying, all right, that deadline, you pass the deadline, you're by two minutes. Work is just absolutely just not, I can't praise you at all because you missed this deadline. So if you have some more realistic expectations of them and allow them to have those little internal wins throughout the day, you're likely to get more productivity than you would otherwise. Productivity is, is motivated, not regulated. That's very true. But Kara, that's the that's too hard. It's I just know, easier I'm if sorry. I just tell what employees to do their damn job, right? You know, and you know, that's and unfortunately we have a lot of managers out there who weren't really trained to be managers. They were really good at their job, so we made them the supervisor. And what? You mean that leaders aren't just promoted? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, and so, you know, you're right though. If 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 we can give, if we can build a culture where employees have 
a sense of mission. They understand why we do what we do, who we serve, and why we serve them the way we do, the value we bring and, and how we serve them. And, and they're in an environment where they feel valued, where their contributions are, are recognized. Those employees are going to work harder for you. They're going to put in that, you know, we always talk about engagement being the, you know, the, the discretionary effort that an employee puts in. And maybe that discretionary effort is instead of that 85%, maybe they give us 90%. And that 5% would be a game changer for you as an organization. Absolutely. Um, but but we've, you know, but that takes a, a level of leadership that unfortunately a lot of companies don't invest in developing. Shocking. And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for three quarters of a recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on Research Credits. Then select episode 115 and enter the keyword September. That's S-E-P-T-E-M-B-E-R. And whether you need more recertification credit, want to expand your HR knowledge, or just want to build your HR network, I want to share one last reminder that Texas State HR Conference, HR Southwest, will be here in Fort Worth on October 15th through the 18th. This is always a great conference. This year, I'll be presenting a couple sessions on the use of artificial intelligence in HR, and those are just two of the dozens of breakout sessions they have scheduled. There is still time to register at hrsouthwest.com. And if you attend, come find me in one of the sessions at Imperative's booth in the marketplace or at the bar at the Omni Hotel across the street. In fact, if you come up to me and whisper, be well, do good, and keep your chin up, I'll buy you a drink. And now back to my conversation with Kara Kelly. So while we're talking about that, and I, and I kind of mentioned the generation gap between you and I earlier, but you hear a lot, especially on HR TikTok and some of that stuff about, um, you know, anti-grind culture, uh, this idea that, uh, you know, we shouldn't expect people to work so hard or even that young professionals, especially, uh, are offended by the idea of working these, you know, these crazy hours, like, you know, uh, accounting and consulting and, and legal, uh, tech, all of those, those industries that, uh, are high growth, rapid, uh, uh, development type organizations, you know, there's a pushback mostly from the people who aren't grinding, uh, against grind culture. And, um, I am still of the opinion, and I think a lot of the young, a lot of the, the younger generation is of this opinion too, that this is the time to invest your time in developing skills and gaining those professional experiences, uh, building your mentor relationships and in grinding, you learn a lot in your early career that you can leverage later. And, um, I think that's a mistake that a lot of young people are, are, are making even the, you know, insisting on remote work. Now I think that's swinging back the other way. I think I'm seeing more and more 
young professionals wanting to work in the office because they're recognizing they need the mentorship and they need the relationships and that familiarity biases are going to hurt them. Yeah. It's the relationships. They need that social. Yeah. And they're going to be hurt also by uh, the, you know, just, uh, you know, uh, uh, whether you call it affiliation bias or whatever, people recognize the people that they work next to. So that you're, you're, if your leadership is in the office and you're working remote most of the time, but your peer is in the office, even if you're more competent than your peer, you risk, you know, have learning from those casual conversations with these people, you know, with leadership that's in there or in the people with experience. Uh, and, and when it comes time for promotions or special projects, the person that somebody sees regularly is very likely to be the one that gets, you know, gets that apple or gets that, you know, that shot at, at grabbing the brass ring. While that's true, I think a lot of that, though, is on the leadership for not creating some of those opportunities for the remote workers. Um, that, you know, the way that the world works now, we have people across the country that may not be able to come into the office. And so you have to stretch yourself as a leader to be able to help manage your remote workforce and, and create those opportunities, be that, you know, specific meetings to be able to recognize that, um, keeping in constant contact with people. I know through social media, you can do that uh, Think of all the all the people that even you and I know that are across the world that, my goodness, we, we've seen their cat videos and we know their kids' names and we have never shaken their hand, but we feel like we know them. And then we you know run into them at a conference and you're like, oh my gosh, you're a person, 3D and everything. <laughs> um, and so it is possible to have that kind of connection with somebody without seeing them in the office every single day. You just have to make that effort. Yeah, and the organizations have to be really intentional on on having structures for that mentorship and those relationships. But again, I think a lot of these young people are, are realizing it's never going to be the same. You're, n- you're not going to have the water cooler conversations. You're not going to have just uh, people knowing and trusting, you know, if you're on a team of, of 15 people and there's some of them are in the office all the time and some are on a hybrid schedule and don't come in as a, you're going to be at a disadvantage. But on the other side, back to the grinding thing, yeah. I think that <laughs> getting the the folks who I, I, I really think young people are, are, are going to miss the boat if they're not willing to, for lack of a better term, grind. I mean, and I'm not saying work yourself to a nub. I'm not saying be the, the you know, the law firm oh, associate. Who put in the effort to get the experience. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's not necessarily working 80 hours a week, but but making sure that you are working your full schedule, making sure you're taking advantage of opportunities to continue to develop yourself. Um, and if you can do that in 35 hours a week, kudos, um, more power to you. But it, making sure that you are at least taking initiative to complete projects, to do well, to learn more, to grow. Um, I, I don't I don't disagree with the word grind. I mean, that kind of is what it feels like when in the younger days. Um, but I don't think you have to burn yourself out to do those things either. There has to be some kind of a balance. And I think the younger workforce coming in are coming in with the fact that with the perspective of we need balance in life. And so they are going to have what will likely be seen as a lesser work ethic, not willing to grind. But in reality, from their perspective, it's they're coming in with boundaries that we didn't have. I didn't have those boundaries when I came in, and I'm, I'm nowhere near with the <laughs> experience you have at this point. I was one of those people who would go above and beyond and work after hours and, and work late at night and make sure that project got done. I, I remember doing bookkeeping projects to like six o'clock in the morning just to make sure it got done. 
And I don't know that the the younger workforce coming in, this Gen Z that's coming into the workforce is going to be willing to do that. Um, but maybe that was a fault in, in me that I should have had a better boundary <laughs> of what was realistic to accomplish in the period of time that I had set for it. Yeah, and, but the, the reality is we've all got our own priorities, right? And mm-hmm. so um, your peer, if you're a young person, your peer who's willing to, to grind it out and work when they need to, maybe not every day, but when there's something due and it's five o'clock and, and let's say we're talking about exempt employees um, and they're, it's five o'clock and their peers all go home, but they say, yeah, I want to get this done and, and make sure that this is you know done well and on time. And they grind out a few extra hours and they consistently do that over time. They're going to be the star in the organization. And so as going back to pay transparency, um, those are things that are hard to measure over time when you're comparing employee A, employee B. Uh, but, um, but that employee who delivers uh, is more valuable to the organization. And the organization is going to miss that person more than the person who just walks out the door at five o'clock. And I think that's totally fair from a comp point of view uh, for the employer that this person delivers more value and we're going to compensate them. I can agree. But how long is that person going to stay? Because if they're working till eight or nine o'clock at night, grinding things out and go home and have no no family life, no family time, end up divorced, end up unhappy and depressed, and they quit their job sooner versus the person who put a little bit more balance into their life and, and could possibly stay with the organization longer, um, who, who's really the more valuable employee over a length of time? Well, and I think that's true. And I think an employer who sees that employee who's working 10 or 11 hour days, or even 10 hour days, let's say five days a week, grinding it out like that. They need to sit down and have a conversation with that person. Yes, uh, absolutely. And, there's and there's it, a difference in so, staying late for the one project a couple times a right, month versus doing it consistently exactly. throughout the week. <laughs> right. Yeah. Somebody who's going to do what they have to do to meet a commitment, a deadline, yeah. uh, to really, or do activity that really moves the organization forward. That's one thing versus that person who, for whatever reason is, you know, is, is just truly burning themselves out. That's where the, you hope an employer is going to say, Hey, I noticed you haven't taken any PTO recently. And I've noticed you've been here late every day. Can we talk about what the real expectations are here? And, and it's, it's almost an expectation resetting from it's a, the opposite of the conversation we most hear from employers. You know, usually we're saying, you're performing here and this is the expectation level. Uh, and in this case, we, you may be knocking it out here, but here's what the expectation level is. It's, 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 you know, I want you to be clear as an employee, we appreciate what you're doing, yes. but this isn't sustainable over a long period of time. Let me offer you my insight uh, from my own experience that there's, you know, you're going to be the better employee over time if, you look for balance on that side. And I think that's a that's an un, unusual conversation for employers to have. Uh, but I've, de- I've definitely over the last 35 years seen plenty of instances where people who were superstars burned themselves out and then management left scra- was left scratching their head. Well, he was, he was such a great employee. I don't understand what happened. Well, you know, he was an over-the-top employee, and you probably had an opportunity to, to intervene, and you didn't. 
Well, and that's where going back to those intrinsic motivators, you know, are, are you really speaking to what they need as, as an, a human, as an employee? Um, you know, the people who are very, very achievement motivated, the ones that do want to get that project done on time and make that deadline because it makes them feel amazing inside. Those are the people that, you know, let them do it. That's great. If that's what they want to do and, and they want to grind it out, um, you know, cool. <laughs> Some people are unattached and have, have uh, this is where they, they get their fun. Um, I'm, I'm one of those people when it comes to things that are on the creative nature. I do a lot of design work and I do it at like midnight, midnight, two o'clock in the morning, because that's when my creative energy is at its peak. Um, some people would see that as, oh my gosh, you are just so lazy. You stay up all night long and then you sleep until 10 a.m. Well, I'm self-employed, first of all, so I can do that. Um, and second of all, that's just, that is where my happy time is because people leave me alone. And I'm able to right. be creative and productive. And it's it's not me grinding out and working till 2 a.m. because I worked an 18-hour day. It's because that is the time that I've set aside to focus on that type of project because it is intrinsically motivating for me to be able to accomplish something like that. And, you know, I guess to wrap that up is just it goes back to leadership. Like you said earlier, um, if, you know, if, if leadership's really paying attention to um, – and not just only the best interest of the employee, but what's in the best interest of the organization over the long term is that I've got this superstar employee and I want them here in five years. I want to, you know, and so I've got to understand what motivates them and and maybe help them conserve themselves over time so we don't wear this, you know, wear them out emotionally, physically, uh, intellectually. So, you know, so that they can contribute and they can continue to grow because when you're worn down to a nub, you're not learning you're, you're, and your, your contributions are going to go down. So employers need to, to be aware of that. And the last one was uh, our friend, uh, John Hyman, uh, who's also been a guest on the podcast, uh, uh, has an ongoing series, Worst Employer of the Year. And uh, throughout the, the year, he, he posts horror stories of, about uh, employers who've uh, gotten themselves in some sort of trouble or at least bad PR because they've got uh, uh, knucklehead managers. And the 10th nominee for the worst employer of 2023 is, according to the headline, the jackass in the box. And it was a jack-in-the-box franchisee who hired, being fast food, a bunch of teenagers. And uh, when some of them complained to management that when their direct supervisor was sexually harassing them, even touching them, offering to pay for sex acts, uh, and allegedly even <sighs> masturbating in front of a female employee as she walked into the restroom, uh, and I can promise that's the first time that word's been used in the Good Morning HR podcast, um, but not the last. Um, you know, they uh, finally, somebody made a complaint, talked to a lawyer or something, and it ends up at the EOC. And uh, the EOCs filed suit against them. This is 2023, Kara. How can this still be going on? Oh, it somehow doesn't shock me. There's plenty of things that are still going on in 2023. But here we are, and um, you know, there's there's no way you can have policies to keep the creepy guy from being the creepy guy. Yeah, but on some of those, to, just to use the word again, I don't care who it's in front of, or if it's in front of no one, masturbating at work, really, really, come on, y'all. Yeah, it's just it's just icky, 
and you're not going to stop the creepy guy from being the creepy guy. But as the employer, as a, as the as a leader in the organization, as soon as it's brought to your attention, you've got to investigate, and you've got to take remediation. You got to take action to stop that from happening. And you know, and if it's as bad as this one is alleged to be by the ESC, and and I take a lot of what the EOC's claims are with a grain of salt usually because they often when you actually get to if they actually get to court turn out to be not so not you know quite as accurate but this one seems seems pretty well founded just with the number of of complaints they had uh, but you've got to take action and and protect the organization and you know I'm sure in in organizations that of a certain size you think, oh yeah, we don't need a lot of HR. We, you know, you know, we we can just, you know, people need to man up and get over it. Or they're just being too sensitive. Yeah, yeah, just being mm. too sensitive, and this is the real world, you know. And but these are teenagers, and I can't imagine that somebody would complain to, uh, you know, a field manager, you know, in the in the hospitality world at a higher level, and they don't do anything about it. I mean, I've I've had to deal with some sexual harassment investigations in, in the decade or so that I've been consulting. And that is one of the things I can certainly appreciate about the clients that I work with is that they do actually take the action to investigate. Um, sometimes it, it pans out to where it was just an, an offhanded comment and we reprimand uh, and, and have this conversation, do some additional training. Um, I've not had anything quite so egregious as this, although I have had pants being removed at work. Um, to show somebody a recently obtained piercing that was not otherwise visible. <laughs> uh, and I've had a few other things. I've had one recently where a vendor of, of the client was harassing their brand new employee, like day one brand new employee. Uh, and she just did not know what to do. She was younger. He was older, making very suggestive remarks, uh, trying to get her to go out for drinks and, and having these conversations. And when my client spoke to them, uh, he said, I was just trying to mentor her. Um, but you know, we took it, oh. we took it very seriously and, and we had a conversation same day. And, and that's the kind of action that, that I love to hear from people in HR is that they did, they immediately investigated this. This wasn't something that they just said, oh, they're just making this up or, oh, this is not very serious. Oh, that's just how he is. Um, it, it doesn't matter how he is. It's, it's the perception of the person who feels like they are being harassed. It doesn't matter if you feel like it's harassment or, or sexual harassment or bullying or violence or anything else that's going on. It's it's what they feel. And investigating that aspect um, needs to happen immediately. Well, and that's the other thing is that's why training is so important. I mean, again, your training isn't often going to change people's behavior. If Sadly they're a not. bad person, yeah, if they're a bad person, they're going to be a bad person. But if if the training has credibility, your employees will know how to report it when it happens. And hopefully if you don't fumble the ball, when it, when, you know, when that first complaint is made, they will trust the organization will take care of it. And you're not going to, you know, you're not going to pay a massive fine for the one employee who does something stupid where you're going to get in trouble is when that employee done something stupid and you, you knew or should have known about it and it continued and you didn't do anything about it to stop it. That's when companies are really getting liable. And, you know, it's the the one guy who, you know, and unfortunately it is oft, often, but not always guys, uh, you know, the one guy who, you know, asks a subordinate out on a date or something like that, you just slap his hand, say, hey, you can't do that and do it again. And, and that's it. But 
when it gets pervasive. When it yeah, contends over time, it. gets more aggressive yeah. about it. By the way, the piercing story, that was female. Okay. Yeah. And so <laughs> it's not always men. <laughs> uh, no, it's not. It's not always. And I, you know, um, I've had, I've done my, and, and you know, employee relation investigations are my favorite thing in the world. Give me a manager who can't keep his hands to himself and I've got a great day ahead of me. <laughs> I, you know, it's just the most interesting, engaging stuff, but I wish none of my clients ever had to deal with it. I mean, I wish, you know, but yeah, because selfishly, people people. selfishly, it gives us our best stories. But yeah, right. um, you would think, yes, it's 2023. Can we not just keep our hands to ourselves and our pants on at work, please? I don't care who you are. And there we have the title of this episode. Can we just keep <laughs> our pants on at work, please? That's HR News. Can we just keep our pants on, please? There we go. Well, Kara, that is all the time we have. Thank you for joining me. It was fun. Absolutely. Thank you for having me back. I always love our conversations. And thank you for listening. You can comment on this episode or search our previous episodes at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcast. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer, and you can reach him at robmakespods.com. And as always, thank you to Imperatives Marketing Coordinator, Marianne Hernandez, who keeps the trains running on time. And I'm Mike Coffey. Please don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I'll see you next week. And until then, be well, do good, and keep your chin up.